Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. My name is Taylor Bickle. Last class session we talked about Sabrina and this class session we're going to talk about The Seven Year Itch. For those of you who don't know, The, the Seven Year Itch is a film about just an average Joe in New York whose wife and child leave for the summer because it's too hot in the city. Um, they go up country somewhere and um, and he's left in his apartment alone when a very very attractive young woman uh, happens to rent the apartment upstairs from him um, for the summer as well so um, there's really only one way to talk about this film um, from the filmmaking perspective and there's really only one way to talk about there's really only one way that Billy Wilder ever talked about this film either and that is this idea of sort of problem-solving through compromise this film comes out in 1955, and if you're not familiar with uh, American cinema history, uh, you may not realize that in 1955 we didn't have ratings. They didn't rate films G, PG, PG-13R. Um, there was something called the Hayes Code, or the Production Code, and the code was there to basically censor films. Their Their job was to cut things out of films um, that they felt didn't belong. There was There's very strict rules. The history of it is in 1934, there were tremendous um, scandals in Hollywood that were making national news. And then on top of that, a number of films that were coming out of Hollywood were considered vulgar um, by, by many and obscene to others. And so the the government stepped in and said look you guys need to do something and the and 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 the studios got together and said okay okay we'll censor ourselves but please don't you know please don't we don't need you guys to do it for us we can do it ourselves so the Hayes code was instituted it was very strict there were things about like um a kiss could only be 40 feet of film which i think is about 5 seconds you know there's there's just all these things and so it forced filmmakers to go about find ways to to get around the the written law of the code to sneak things in and that really became became a massive issue here with a with a property like the seven year itch which is which was a massive smash on broadway but it's it's completely about sex and adultery there there was just no way to to do that with the Hayes code in place and so not just the sex but even the language of the play that Wilder um and and the co-writer George Axelrod who wrote the original play the seven year itch had to had to figure out and 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 there was a lot of bargaining involved it was very typical it's still very typical honestly of of filmmakers at the time um who wanted to get it past the censors they would put things in there that were way over the top so that so that subjectively the the censors would come in and say, well, you have to cut this, this, and this. And they say, okay, okay, okay. But then they would kind of overlook some of the lesser egregious, you know, some of the lesser violations, um, you know, and filmmakers still do that today to get a lower rating. If they're afraid that it's going to be in C-17, they'll do crazy stuff to get it back down to R. If they think it's going to be R, but they want it PG-13, then, you know, the same thing. Um you know, and so there were all these things that Billy had to do to sort of compromise with the Hayes Code just to even get the film made, just to get it released to an audience. One of those things is, is it makes sense on some level, it's fascinating on others, and it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's crazy to think about in other ways. 
let me read this this from you. This is um this is from the biography Nobody's Perfect. The difference between a good film and one that is less than what it might have been in this case was a hairpin. I had this idea the morning after Tom Ewell's made. Tom Ewell plays plays the hero or well the protagonist of this film. Tom Ewell's made finds a hairpin in the bed. So we don't see anything, but we know everything. That's how Lubitsch would have done it, but they wouldn't allow it. A picture that got down to one subtle hairpin, and we had to cut it out. That's the kind of compromises that he had to make. In the play, this man and this young woman commit adultery. In the film, they weren't allowed to at all, even to the point of even suggesting it through a hairpin. One hairpin. Perhaps the most Lubitsch-esque touch Billy ever created couldn't be in the film. That's compromise. That that in in, in Billy's mind that overcompromised the film. M- Billy did not have high regard for this film. He didn't think it was that good. I think the movie plays really well now, and I think in some ways it might actually play better without the hairpin. But I'd be fascinated to see the cut with the hairpin. And that's really what what the biggest compromise was. Billy had to let Tom Yule's character imagine what it would be like if he committed adultery. And then had to build in these reactions to Tom Yule's, Yule's character where that terrifies him. And that, 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 I mean, that, that's where the compromise is. That's the biggest difference between the play and the film adaptation. In fact, Billy said that he wishes he had waited until like the 70s to do this because he could have made a much more different film. Um, but let's, let's, let's talk about that Tom Yule character. Tom Yule played, played this character on Broadway first. Um, he, he had done hundreds of performances as this character and, and he, so he clearly knew the character inside and out, you know, the studio, the studio had a lot of different ideas about who should play Tom Yule's character on the screen. At one point it was suggested that Jimmy Stewart should do it, but he ended up having a scheduling conflict and couldn't. And so, and so once they kind of went through this roster of stars, then they started going into the more unknowns and George Axelrod, who, who co-wrote the film with Billy and 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 wrote the screen or the stage play? He had seen an actor on Broadway by the name of Walter Matthau, and he suggested, "Well, why don't you test out this Walter Matthau guy? Why don't you give him a screen test?" And Billy did, and Billy knew he had found the right actor for the part. There's about thirty seconds of the screen test of Walter Matthau that you can find on YouTube. It was a part of a behind-the-scenes thing. In fact, actually, if you have if you happen to have the film The Seven Year Itch, it's in one of the behind the scenes there. You can actually see it. It's really great. And so Billy knew he had the guy that he needed, but the studio again but the studio steps in and says, We don't know this guy, nobody knows this guy, nobody's gonna go see the seven year itch starring Walter Matthau. So again, Billy has to compromise and he casts Tom Ewell, who the studio wanted because he had already played the character the few people who were familiar with the play would have known that it was Tom Ewell, etc. You know, it it, it it was a safe bet to have Ewell reprise his role for the screen. But <laughs> the Mathau Ewell casting was not the only casting issue. Of course, Marilyn Monroe was the perfect actress to play the girl. She had the, Her character in this film actually has no name, just like she, she has no name in the play. Marilyn Monroe was the perfect person for this role. There is no doubt about it. The problem is some of you may and some of you may know this and some of you may not. Marilyn was not the easiest actress to work with. In fact, Billy says this. 
He says, when I look back over the years, I'm not angry with Marilyn. She was someone you could I, she was someone you could get angry at, but not someone you could stay angry at. But I know if I were making a picture today and she was in it because I lost my mind and cast her and she came late, I would get just as angry as before. Angrier. She wouldn't know her lines. Terrible. Then on the 30th take, she would say it like no one, ever, like no one else ever could. Working with her was like being a dentist, you know, pulling those lines out like teeth, except the dentist felt the pain. But no matter how much you suffered with Miss Monroe, she was totally natural on the screen, and that's what survived. She glowed. And this is the thing about working with tough, tough actors and actresses. When they do it right, when they do it the way you want, when, you know, when... <laughs> when they actually show up to set, Marilyn was notorious for being late. You know, when when she finally remembered her lines and delivered them correctly, they were breathtaking. They were perfect. It was the best line reading, you know, anyone could have given them. But the constant having to work with her and get it right and take after take after take and delay after delay after delay. I mean, it's it's amazing she ever got any films made. You know, but the thing is, is that it was always worth it. And that's the compromise you had to take with Marilyn. You had to take the good, in fact, the great, with the bad. And some of this manifested in ways that weren't completely even under Marilyn's control. I mean, the most famous scene from the film, of course, is her standing over the subway grate and the skirt blowing up, right? And, you know, it's... It, that's it, it, it's probably the most lasting image of Marilyn Monroe we have. The thing is, is 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 Billy, much like on the Lost Weekend, decided that they needed to shoot a lot of this in New York City. So they go out to a street in New York City at night, and and they set up and they do their thing, and it's but it they're filming Marilyn Monroe. So a crowd of like thousands of people is gathered around this set watching Marilyn Monroe, catcalling, whistling, making a lot of noise, a lot of comments, etc. And nobody on the set could get them to shut up. Nobody could get them to be quiet at all. The only thing that ever worked was Marilyn would just put put a finger to her lips and the crowd would quiet down. So this whole shooting is kind of a nightmare anyway. Not to mention the fact that, and I'm not trying to be vulgar here, this is just the story as it's been relayed to me through 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 my research. Marilyn's panties under her dress were very transparent which she noticed when she was dressing so she put on two pair which i'm sure didn't look great you know <laughs> for the filming and then on top of that they couldn't get the they couldn't get the air coming up through the grate to go right it would blow her skirt completely up and over her head well that's not what they were going for what they wanted was a very you know, much something, something a little bit more subtle than that. You know, much, much closer to the, you know, the image that we're familiar with, with the, the hand down. You know, and very, I guess, more tasteful. Um, and no matter what they did, they couldn't get it right. You know, and then you have this crowd who's just losing it because they're getting to see Marilyn Monroe not quite in the buff, but close because the panties aren't really doing much to cover her. And finally, they just had to call it quits. And then they had to take it back to Hollywood and shoot it in a studio, recreate the street, which I'm sure was massively expensive, and and shoot it there in a much more controlled environment where they could really control the the air a lot better and you know everything. And so 
again, compromise. Billy had this idea, we're going to shoot this on the street in New York, it'll be great. And then it doesn't work, it totally, it, it, it totally shoots him in the foot. So then he has to compromise and say, okay, well then forget this, we'll do it in a studio where we have the control, we can get it right. Because that's more important than doing it in New York City. And that's the thing with compromise, it's, it's about understanding what the priorities are, what's important, what's not important. Is it necessary to have you know um some of the more explicit sexual dialogue from the from the play is it necessary to have some of the overt language some of the you know the damn it's in the son of a bitch you know is it necessary to have those is it necessary um is it necessary that this unknown that you really 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 like play the role that someone else has already mastered you know is it necessary that we have the hairpin is it necessary that we suggest to a 1955 movie-going audience, not a Broadway audience. People expect different things from movies and Broadway, especially at that time. Is it necessary that we imply to the movie-going audience that Tom Yule's character has slept with Marilyn Monroe's character? Is it necessary that you get a, a more reliable performer, but not the best performer? Is it necessary that you shoot something on location versus in a studio where it will be more expensive to recreate everything and but you will have the control that you need to get what you need to serve the film? That's compromise. Prioritizing. Figure out, figuring out what's necessary and what's not. What are the hills you can die on and what are the ones that you just have to, you know, let go as triage? That's compromise. That's problem solving. That's what filmmaking comes down to. It just does. Everything is compromised. Nothing works the way you want it to, or at least very rarely. And you just have to take what you have to try to get what you can. That's filmmaking. Thank you so much for listening to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Next class session, we have The Spirit of St. Louis, and then Love in the Afternoon, and then Witness for the Prosecution. That, I actually just found this out. All three of those movies came out in the same year, by the way. That's, that's pretty impressive. To release three movies like that in one year anyway um if you have any comments questions concerns suggestions please feel free to email us hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com all lowercase all one word um or you can um find us on the hitchcock university facebook page as well as um with our twitter handle hitchcock underscore u the letter u is in university um all lowercase yeah, uh, that's all we have. Thank you again so much for listening to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. My name is Taylor Bickle, and we will talk to you again in two weeks. Thanks.